Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Brian Bain. He's a prison activist, artist, scholar, and author of four books, including The Ugly Side of Beautiful, Rethinking Race in Prisons in America, uh, currently banned in Texas prisons. And he's the director of, prison education, of the prison education program at UCLA. And you can learn more about his internationally acclaimed hip hop theater and spoken word multimedia production Lyrics from Lockdown, executively produced by Harry Belafonte, and his Emmy award-winning work on LA Stories at uh, www.brion.com, spelled B-R-Y-O-N-N.com. And his newest book, Out Now, is called Rebel Speak, a Justice Movement Mixtape. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Absolutely, man. man. And so I want to start out with a quote, and then we're going to get the conversation rolling. Mm. So Brian writes, critical race theory urges us to interrogate the assumptions that sim- systems of oppression require. Mm-hmm. It puts a bullseye on the back of injustice, beginning with the legal system and branching out to education and all of the other systems of power it shapes. CRT calls out the socially constructed origin and reality of race, class, gender, sexual and national identities, immigration, incarceration, disability, and religion. Mm. It reveals that just, just as each of these is constructed, they can also be deconstructed. These systems are most dangerous when we regard them as natural or innate and fail to recognize that they are in fact man-made. Challenging the naturalness and innateness of social constructs is at the root of what it means to be critical. The etymology of the word critical begins in medicine and evokes a crisis in a condition of extreme danger. Mm -hmm. Before the mid-1500s, it was related to the crisis of disease. So I love that, man. Great writing there. And then so my first question is going to be in terms of critical race theory, right? So when we think of these constructs, like, you know, immigration, um, so immigration, obviously, sexual national identities, incarceration, right, race, class, etc. So we're usually prone to thinking of them as natural constructs. And obviously, critical race theory challenges that. So can you tell us a little bit about what first of all, I want to know, how come you think it is kind of in our minds so innate? And how does critical justice, oh, critical race theory, um, deconstruct it and examine it and put it forth in this kind of new dimension? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. So for many people, <clears throat> race is something that is uh, we take for granted. We take it for granted as if it's somehow natural, right? As if it's something that we're, we're, we are born with and we're stuck in. But if we look at how race is constructed around the world, it becomes clear that this is actually something that is completely artificial. We've, it's totally man-made, it's totally constructed because you could be black in Brooklyn and be white in Brazil. Right. You could be Indian in Crown Heights. Right. But then turn out to be, you know, colored in South Africa. Right. You know, so because you can go from place to place, the fact you get off of a plane, your race changes, lets you know immediately this is not something that is based in true science. Right. Right. So the idea that race is actually a believed has a believed in an element of it. But although it's believed in, it's not scientific in any in any true sense. And so the idea of hegemony, right, the idea, this idea that we the world is the way that it is, because this is the only way that it can be, is something that has been used to control people for centuries, right? We get we, we, we created this fiction of race in this country in particular, which starts off even within the American Constitution, black people were three fifths of a human being that is in the Constitution that we defend to no end. So the idea that we, we have to create a, a subordinate group of people. It's Black people in this country. In India, it's the Dalits or the so-called untouchable caste. That creates a situation where those who are at the top actually can maintain power by keeping those who are in the lower elements of lower portions of the society 
pit against each other. And so working class white folks in this country, early on, working class whites who themselves were indentured and enslaved formed solidarity. They were rebellions against the elite in this country because they were like, wait a second, these rich landowners, property owners, are giving us the worst end of the stick. We're being treated like, like animals. And so mm -hmm. early on, you had Shays Rebellion, Baker's Rebellion, these rebellions that brewed where black folks and white folks actually joined forces to, to challenge the elite. But the fiction of race was used to make sure that they could effectively divide and conquer. This is seen around the world, wherever you see colonization, in the Caribbean, in part, various parts of Asia, throughout Latin America, the European powers that came into these different places as part of the colonial, the, the project of empire, created these ideas that we actually are born into a race, born into a, a pseudo caste, and by being born into that, there's nothing you can do to get out of it, and that fiction that we buy into, we believe, it allows those in power to maintain their power over us and to subjugate us. And so critical race theory is a powerful response. It's a powerful response to that power dynamic because it says, wait a second, the law is not objective truth. The law in this country is not based, it did not come down on some, some tablets from Mount Sinai from God, right? The law is actually something that men made and largely wealthy, property-owning white men made. And it was done to maintain and to hold on to their power. And so race, along with gender, along with sexuality, these are concepts, constructions that we have, have been handed. And we can decide to either keep them or to do away with them. As Howard Zinn says, there's no neutral on a moving train, right? We're on, we, we, you're born on this moving train. And you can decide whether you're going to just go along for the ride and take your privilege and just chill. Or <laughs> are you going to say, oh, hell no. Let me go talk to this conductor. Let me go out of this conductor and, and get this train to stop because I don't like the way that this is going or it's going too fast. So I want to make a left turn or a right turn. Or, or maybe I'm going to organize with other folks and stop this train from going in the direction it's going. And so we have that power in critical race theory and critical race studies connected to it gives us the power of analysis to understand how these categories are not uh, natural categories, but are man-made categories that we can change and we, we, we must change if we're going to have the, the world that we want to be living in. Mm -hmm. I love that, man. So can we talk about a little, a little bit about the precepts of critical race theory? So what is it exactly that they're teaching us about just the legal, the educational, the sort of culture that we find ourselves in, just globally speaking, obviously not just in the USA? There's a couple of elements. And the, the, one of them, first and foremost of them, is the idea that the law is, uh, is, 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 is built in notions of racial bias, right? Mm -hmm. So the law has presents itself as neutral. But that neutrality is actually rooted in something that, that is linked to white supremacy in its early stages. If you look at the earliest property law cases in the case books that law students across the United States read, right, the language of property law begins with this concept of, of adverse possession. So the idea that if I see this land that these native people have been on, right, I'm in LA right now, where the, 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 the stewards of the land before were the Tongva people, right? You're in New York, so you have like the, the, the Iroquois, the Algonquin, you have all these folks who were there before everybody else. The, the idea of the early American legal system was that we have, if I occupy this land, I can take it. And the cases actually said, I can take it because the people who were here before me were savages. They weren't Christian. They were uncivilized. They're not deserving of this land. And so I can take this land. 
That's in the law. Now, over time, there's been resistance to that. There's been challenges to that. And so the law has, has been forced to become more sophisticated in its articulation in response to the resistance, the rebellion, the challenges to that sentiment. But the underlying spirit of that is still there. The underlying spirit of conquest is still there. This is certainly not unique to the United States, right? You know, we know for sure the, uh, the, the, the slogan of the British Empire was that it was the empire in which the sun ever sets, right? Because it, it reached all over the world. So if you go to Kenya, if you go to Kenya, you will find for generations, the children were beaten in their schools for speaking out in their native tongue. Children in Nairobi, outside of Nairobi, who spoke Kikuyu, were mm -hmm. beaten if they spoke their native tongue Kikuyu because they were only allowed to speak English in their classrooms because the British said, this is now the language of Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. And so that powerful reality is not just in the United States, it's not just in Kenya, it's wherever there was colonization. The Spanish did it throughout Latin America, the Portuguese did it in Brazil and in the Congo, right? And uh, the, the Dutch did it, uh, the Dutch East India Trade Slave Trading Company was, was one of the first. So these tactics were so powerful and it was so powerful because it not only did it give the lesson to the student that their culture was inferior, right? That the European language was superior, right? It also taught them that the European culture was superior because language is not just a carrier of ideas. Language actually is a carrier of our culture, a carrier of identity, right? You know what I'm saying? If we in New York, if we in Brooklyn, we talk a certain way. And out here in Cali, everybody's like, you know, hella having a good time, right? So our language carries our culture, right? It carries, you know, in, in Trinidad, my parents talk a different way than when they go to England and they speak quite properly, right? So <laughs> this language is powerful. So when you tell children your language is worth nothing, you're telling them they are worth nothing. But they were also teaching another lesson because they would beat the children who spoke out in their native tongue, right? And they didn't just beat them right away. They said, you know what? You spoke out in your language, hold this little black rock and I'll go on with the lesson. And then when another kid spoke out, they say, okay, you take the black rock and then we go on with the lesson. Another kid spoke out, they say, you take the black rock. At the end of the day, they come to the last kid with the black rock and they say, tell us who gave you the black rock and we won't give you 20 lashes, we'll only give you 10. And of course, of course, a little kid would say, oh, okay, well, you know, <laughs> he gave it to me. He get beat, they go to the next kid. Tell us who gave it to you. We won't give you 20 lashes, we'll give you 10. They're learning divide and conquer. They're learning I can better myself by selling out my brother and sister. That tool, that classic tool of colonization. And so this is a global paradigm that has happened. The teaching of whiteness, <clears throat> white culture of European identity as being superior and of all other cultures being inferior has happened wherever there was colonization, wherever there was empire, which is most of the planet. And so this is not an attack on white folks because white folks who are in solidarity with movements for liberation are also down with people being able to speak their own language, people being expressed their own culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so this critical race theory and critical race studies actually give us the analysis that says the law is not a neutral tool. The law has uh, racial biases built into it. And by acting as if it, it, it is neutral, we lose the capacity to actually build tools to undo the harm that has been done for centuries. So that is a, a cornerstone of the analysis of critical race theory. And this is not something I'm create, I've created. You know, there's a whole school of, of, of scholars, legal scholars, folks like Laura Gomez, Cheryl Harris, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. I had the honor of studying with Lonnie Guineer, who re recently passed, uh, you know, may she rest in peace and rest in power. And so these are the folks who I learned from Derek Bell, 
And they were folks who saw the failure of some of the changes that happened after the civil rights movement. And they saw in the 70s and 80s that the, the, the attempts to create you know, racial equality by creating colorblind uh, policies and leg legislation wasn't actually undoing centuries of inequity and injustice that had poor communities of color sort of trapped in poverty, in isolation, and inequity. And so they said, we need to do more than that. We need to look at like how if, if, if we start a race and you get 400 years to run the race and then I get to start after you, it's gonna take some time before I can actually catch up. So That's finding right. ways to actually undo the damage that was done over centuries of enslavement, of genocide, Rate, critical race theory says we need to actually look at how we've embedded within the law these traditions of white supremacy so we can create a more fair, just, and equitable world. Right. And why do you think there's a, I know there's some kind of movement against it. You think it's just <clears throat> the people who just want to keep that sort of subjugating mindset going, or is there something else going on there? Are they just afraid of change or? They're know? definitely afraid of change. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you are. They're definitely afraid of change. And I, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, the metaphor that comes to mind for me is, uh, you know, before the dragon, you know, falls off the cliff, its tail tries to smash everything it can touch. Right. Hmm. And so I think I think white supremacy and uh, hyper capitalism and patriarchy, these these dragons that consume us in so many ways, men, women, black folks, white folks, people of all races and ethnicities. Like these, these, these dragons of inequity and injustice are being called out. And as they're being called out, they're smashing against everything before they get thrown off the cliff. But I do think that's, that's a part of the reality. Folks are absolutely fearful, fearful that they're going to lose power and privilege that they have enjoyed for a very long time. I mean, and I, I feel it myself when I'm called out as a man, because I was born into a sexist world. I have sexist patterns and traditions that I, I realize more and more every day because I was raised mm. in this world as we all were. So I have that level of male privilege. Even as a black person, I don't have racial privilege because when I walk down the streets and the cop sirens go on, automatically, you know, my reptilian brain kicks into overdrive and I'm like on flight or, or fight mode or freeze mode. So, but I do have male privilege. And so I, I recognize when women are like, you know what, this, I feel unsafe in certain situations because I'm a woman, or I feel like it's, you know, it's messed up that I, we're still getting paid less than 70 cents on the dollar compared to what men get paid. Or, you know, why is it that the, the, the baddest women's soccer team on the planet, the U.S. soccer team, who's won multiple championships, still is getting paid less than the U.S. men's soccer team who can't win a damn thing, right? You know, so, so, so when we look at all these inequities, like I feel called out as a man because I enjoy a certain amount of male privilege. And so my knee jerk reactions is to be like, well, no, no, I, to feel attacked. We have to take a pause, take a deep breath and really take a moment to, to, to really think about what it means because it's actually important for me to be in solidarity with those who are standing up to challenge patriarchy because i don't want to live in a world where women are subjugated i don't want to live in a world not only where women are subjugated like my my my, my mother my aunties my sisters but also I, I see that patriarchy creates a world in which i can't express the fullness of my own humanity 
because I'm forced to be boxed into these constructs of what a man is supposed to be, uh, to, to be a real man, to, to man up, to not have emotions. This is why you men die earlier than women, because we're forced to not actually understand and express our emotions, keep it all bottled in, be a real man. So yeah. patriarchy hurts us too, in the same way that racism hurts white people, right? There are immediate privileges, right? Police won't jack you up. You might be able to get those alone in the house a little bit easier. There's privileges we can list for days about white privilege. However, at the same time, it creates the society we live in where not only we have more prisons in the United States than ever before in human history, more people in, in, in human cages in this country, but white people live in gated communities. White people live with more fear because we've bought into this idea that these crazy black people and brown people, and they're all out to get us. These immigrants are out to get us. And so when you allow that, that, that kind of fear to manufacture consent to building the largest human caging system in human history, we are all impacted by that, right? And so you, our, our children, right, will look at each other through that lens, right? Through that lens of the other. We see them as something else. These folks are different from me. That nothing, And is that the type of world we want to live in? We have to really ask ourselves, is that type of world we want to live in? We know that generations before us lived in that kind of world, but we can do better. We can do better. We have to do better. And part of it is really reconciling, having a reckoning with the racial inequities that we've inherited. None of us created. We didn't create this situation. You didn't create this situation. I didn't create this situation, but we got it. And so now the question is, what are we going to do with it? We're going to perpetuate it. We're going to keep it going. Or we're going to find ways to think about it critically, it's challenging. It might mean I have to give up some of my male privilege. It might mean some folks have to give up some of their white privilege. Mm -hmm. But if it means that we can live in a society where we're not afraid of each other, we don't have to like put each other in cages or put ourselves and our communities in gated cages as well, right? Ultimately, I think that is the, the worthy goal. Yeah, plus that, that mindset uh, at the core of division, it, it's just going to perpetuate. Even those white people who are in those gated communities, they're going to find a way to divide each other at some point their children are going to find a way to divide whoever they deem as the other later on in life. And it's just going to keep going on because that's, that's basically. Right. Look at, look at, look at Russia and Ukraine. Perfect example. Oh, you mean like, yeah. That, yeah. Makes no, literally makes Russian, no basically. sense. Yeah. Cause like, yeah. so for me, I'm Ukrainian and I've always identified as Russian and I'm like, this is so stupid. It just doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's one thing to create artificial differences. It's another thing when people begin losing their life because of it. Right. right. You know, and you see that happening in Ukraine right now. You see that happening with all the police cell phone videos in the United States. You know, you see it happen, you know. So um, so I think I think you're to start off with that that questioning of the social constructs is really a key question. And I don't and it, it, part of the defense of critical race theory has been, well, it's only for law students. And I think that may be by and large true right now. My response, though, is that we should say we shouldn't just be saying that we should be saying, you know what, we need to think critically about race in every college in the country and every high school in the country. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we're doing sex education in high school, we should do, be doing education about race to think critically about race as well, because we're that's boys are becoming uh, boys are, are becoming men. Girls are becoming women. Non-binary folks are becoming non-binary adults. Right. So this is the time for us to begin really questioning these categories that we're buying into. Many of us are born into into families, into uh, religious households, into households where we have all many different things we're learning. But when we have the opportunity to become an adult, right, the scriptures 
you know, say when I was a child, I, I spoke as a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things, right? The idea is that as you be, get older, you begin to think for yourself and to be an autonomous individual. And you can question the categories that you were born into, that you inherited, and make choices about how you want to live your life and how you want to organize your family and how you want to organize your community and your society. And we don't have to be trapped into the worlds of dictators and 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 categories that oppress people that maybe our ancestors actually passed on to us, right? We honor them and for all their greatness and all the all the great things they gave us, but we're not, we don't have to be locked into traditions that don't serve the best of our humanity. Yeah. And so and, and with respect to critical race theory, that actually makes me think of something James Baldwin said, which was echoed in the film Malcolm X, where he said, you know, when you think of whiteness, you think of purity and you think of blackness and it's like the shadow side of that. So when I think of critical race theory, I think of the fact that like when we think, <clears throat> just when we look at the legal system and when we look at the criminal justice system, what we want to tend to think of is like these American ideals that our forefathers passed on to us. So a lot of the backlash, I mean, obviously, and I want to know your ideas here and some of your thinking, but a lot of the backlash seems to me, it's like when we think of some of these unsavory moments of American history, and we think of the fact that like, you know, somehow the whiteness isn't pureness. It's something that again, we want to kind of split ourselves off of, right? It's kind of this Jungian shadow self, where we mm. want to say that no, 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 it's actually not us, right? The reason why that we have, let's say a disproportionate amount of black and brown people in prisons, and locked in cages, and why you know, they go through the criminal justice system more so than white people is because they break the law, right? It's just that simple. They break the law, we punish them for it. So in their minds, just like white and the concept of it, the concept of justice is pure, and it's sort of handed out in a way that's obviously without its flaws. And it's also, it's it, also that's not correct too. There are people who are incarcerated incorrectly, right. like definitely. You know, I'm not going to yeah. speak to that, but yeah. def definitely, there's cases of that. There's cases of corrupt police, yep. even police forgetting if they're corrupt or not, just based on their their level of training. They definitely take wrong actions they're not trained in uh, psychology or how to sort of de-escalate situations sometimes some maybe make that effort but that's not something that's a widespread sort of uh, a thing that you know is taught everywhere and it's it's a huge issue also mental health and incarceration is a big thing yes. uh, we, uh, yeah real quick yeah. sorry uh, brian yeah. brian uh, when you were talking earlier about um uh women right and and, and the patriarchy right there's even um in the in the talk in the seminar uh, that you gave uh, with uh, uh, Topeka Molina and mm -hmm. forgive me for you know uh, yeah. not remembering yeah. but yeah, yeah. like uh, Topeka like she was uh, saying that eighty six I have it written down here eighty six percent of women who are incarcerated are uh, women who suffered uh, sexual trauma abuse or violence and that's yeah. only like what's reported for example and, and th things like that people or people who are uh, locked in uh, solitary confinement mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Molina was right and she, she uh, like imagine so I, I don't know if you remember this but for seven years she was uh, I believe locked in solitary confinement it was Shaka. Shaka was Shaka was Shaka? yeah yeah you got it though you yeah. got it though. yeah, yeah. yes yeah. Yeah, but yeah. just so, but just to kind of follow through on what I was saying before oh, yeah, too. Bad. It's okay, it's okay. So yeah, because <laughs> I want to kind of tie it in all in together, right? So, so I'm excited. I love no, no, I love I that you went that. into it, right? Yeah. So just to kind of follow in or follow through with that, right? So the idea here is that when we think about justice, it's nowhere near as pure as sort of you know, uh, again, as sort of we'd like to consider ourselves or the system being, right? <clears throat> so Brian, do you think that that's part of why there's such backlash to it? Because again, it sort of goes against what we'd like to see or what we'd like to think of ourselves in terms of not only American history but American politics, American justice, and obviously just a conservative movement in general. And what, you know, 
what they've supposedly said that they've brought us or brought this country, especially in terms of making America great? Well, you know, it's it's not surprising that there's pushback when people are calling for major change, you know, but we're in a time where this country is changing and a lot of folks don't accept that. You have a a group of folks who are pointed on the future and thinking about the direction of this country and the world. And this country is increasingly looking more and more like the rest of the world. And there are folks who are holding on to the past. They're holding on to a past that is doomed to, uh, to, to recede. And so, so that is a reality. And it's a reality a lot of folks don't like. A lot of folks would like to stay focused on the past and not focus on the future. But uh, the changes are happening, right? We are, you know, the younger folks in, in, in this country and around the world, like are more connected than they've ever been, right? Technology, podcasts have given folks the opportunity to communicate with folks in Japan from, you know, from, from Los Angeles, right? From all over the globe. And so that interconnectivity has really tied us into this old Buddhist concept, the old Buddhist concept that says our separation is an illusion. And our interconnectedness is the reality, right? You know, we're breathing the same air. The climate justice movement, like, is 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 growing finally, <laughs> right, uh, in an exponential way because folks are realizing we're breathing the same air, we're drinking the same water, we are part of this same organism, right? And so, if our the way that we treat other people, treat each other, can reflect that sense of interconnectedness, right? We can no longer hold on to these rigid categories that enslaved so many of our ancestors before us, right? They're not gonna work. They don't serve the kid who's, I got a 10 year old son who's, you know, playing Minecraft with people, you know, 3000 miles away in, you know, in, in Brooklyn, you know what I'm saying? You know, I got, so that kind of interconnectivity forces you at an early age before any of us to understand that there's somebody on the other side of the planet, on the other side of the country who is like me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm more like them than I'm different from them. And so that's part of how the consciousness is expanding. And so those who want to hold that back are, are, are going to continue to rage against that change. But that change is here. That change is coming. And this is the time for it. And if not, now when, right? So our understanding of sexuality, right? You know, it took, you know, when I was growing up, like when someone came out as gay in high school, they were taunted they were you know abused they were called all kinds of names they were shunned right it was such a taboo parents told their kids don't don't you know talk to that kid because they, they, they're gay they're queer right you know my parents generation my parents are immigrants from trinidad little island in the, in the caribbean came to brooklyn in the 60s and 70s you know um they didn't have that understanding it wasn't talked about you know they went to church they were that wasn't a part of the reality and in the church it was it was a very homophobic environment, you know? There wasn't an opportunity for people to express that part of their sexuality. That was blasphemous, right? That was Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, my son, I have a son who's 20, I have a son who's 10. My 20-year-old son says, you know, when he was in high school, people came out, it was no big deal. My son who's 10, I have a son who's 12, they're telling me, you know, somebody came out in middle school. Right. <laughs> you know, so at a younger age, people are more comfortable with who they are because we're beginning to create a culture that is more supportive of people's humanity, 
and less condemning of who we are. Now, is it is it? It's far from perfect. I don't want to make the claim that what the way that things are moving in New York and Los Angeles reflects everywhere in the country, because in some ways they can be bubbles. New York and California can be bubbles, and I get that. But they're also the coasts. They're also the places where more people from other parts of the country are coming into the country, and so you have a greater diversity in places like Brooklyn and Queens than in most places on the planet, right? Because you have you know in in, in a in a ten block. 10 block stretch you can get food probably from every place in the world right you know what i'm saying that's one of the special yeah. things about it right you know so so that mix of cultures that closest of cultures is forcing our consciousness to expand and to challenge our ways of thinking so critical race theory i talk about this in the book i talk about this in rebel speak it's called critical race theory it's called critical race studies but i was introduced to this these concepts in hip-hop as a kid in New York City, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. When I was a kid in and, and listening in the 1980s, listening to KRS-One, listening to Public Enemy, listening to Rakim, you know, listening to um, MC Search, right? Mm -hmm. Listening to, you know, uh, there was this space and it was created mostly by black and brown youth, black Puerto Rican youth in New York City, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, in these neighborhoods, in Queens, but there was space if you were a white kid, an Asian kid who had skills. There was space in the cipher. If you had skills and you could tag up, there was space for you. There was, you know, a, one of the most famous uh, graffiti artists, you know, Taki 183, Greek kid, you know what I'm saying? There's all these, 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 these legacies of folks from every racial. So hip hop was that diverse multiracial community led by black and brown youth, but created space for folks. And now this is the first time that the, the, the breaking B-boy and B-girl is going to the Olympics. And some of the best breakers in the world, you know, those from the Bronx originated. But you look at like the Japanese breakers or the German breakers or the, you know, the breakers from, from Korea who are, and they're just, they're taking it to a whole nother level. So when you're raised in that culture, and hip hop is about to be 50 years old next year, y'all. 50 years old, believe it or not, you know, that culture, which connects me and my 20 year old son, who is an artist and the big shout out to Indigo 13, big East side, his new album just dropped. I'm so proud of him. You know, that culture that connects us, you know, is part of why we are sort of shedding the skin of these old socially constructed categories that kept us from connecting to each other. You know what I'm saying? You know, you look pretty damn good with a bald head. You know what I'm saying? And so do I. You know what I'm <laughs> like, we have so much in common. And I feel like, you know, this is a moment where I say it, I say it uh, in jest, but also in a real way, the culture is expanding, the consciousness is expanding, and we're finding ways to look at each other and be like, look at all we have in common. How, how can we build the world we want to live in and our children want to live in based on the connections that we see in each other? Yeah, I love that, man. And so just because I love hip hop so much, I'm going to have to ask. So can you take us back to how you first fell in love with rap and how you fell in love with KRS-One and then take us all the way through to your dialogue to Chuck D? Oh, with Chuck so, D. <laughs> so I got to say, you know, it was my my brother K gave me my first mixtape, you know, and I love the, the, this book, Rebel Speak, I've called it a mixtape because a mixtape is kind of back in the 80s and 90s. It was like you put together recordings of all the songs you love for somebody you love, for your, your boy or for yeah. your girlfriend or the girl you wanted to be your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah we all used and, to know, do mixtapes for girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. So, so, and this book is in some ways a collection of, of, of conversations and essays I've recorded because of my own revolutionary love for the people. And so Kay, my brother Kay, uh, big shout to him. He does amazing violence interruption work uh, with this human justice framework in the projects all over New York City. 
you know, he gave me my first mixtape and it had Rakim and it had Karis one and Boogie Down Productions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was exciting. I, I write about in the book how hearing KRS call himself a poet, a teacher, a scholar, you know, you know, he said, I don't eat no goat, no turkey, no hamburger. Because to me, that's suicide, self-murder. I, I became a vegetarian in 1991 when I left the house. You know what I'm saying? Listening to Rakim talk about, I used to eat fish, which is my favorite dish. I mean, those were like the rhymes that I, I learned as a kid. It blew my mind that people who look like me were actually doing such amazing acrobatics with language, right? And making it cool to be smart, to making it cool to be scholarly, making it cool to question authority, right? To challenge people in power. That's what Shakespeare did. That's why they love Shakespeare. Because he was using the people's language to, to, to call out people in power, even if it was in a comical way, in a dramatic way. That's what hip hop artists were doing. And so when I finally, Public Enemy was like, you know, it was like a, a big bang, you know, when they came on the scene and they were doing stuff, quoting Malcolm X speeches in their songs, you know what I'm saying? Uh, their, their power, even 1989, when they, they, they did the soundtrack for Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. I remember seeing that and seeing neighborhoods in Brooklyn that I knew that I had been in and seeing that on the big screen when there weren't, a, you know, a dozen black filmmakers out there making movies, you know, seeing Spike Lee make Do the Right Thing, seeing, hearing Public Enemy's music in that, hearing them call on us to challenge power, that helped to shape my consciousness. Before critical race theory, critical race studies, hip hop was doing it. Hip hop was like, question this, they're lying to you, right? They're lying to you and you need to see through the BS because there's more than what they're actually feeding you. Don't believe the corporate mainstream media Chuck D called uh, hip hop the black CNN, right? It's supposed <laughs> to be the black version of giving you the real, the real deal. So when I had the opportunity to interview him and, uh, and, and to put our transcript into this book, it was, it was a, a phenomenal moment for me, you know? Um, I sat down with him, uh, a law professor by the name uh, of Alicia Varani, really brilliant criminal justice scholar uh, and advocate. And to sit down with him and have him go through and walk through what he saw as a kid growing up, when he went to high school to hear his, his experiences, his struggles and how hip hop for him was a vehicle to actually express himself and to give voice to the challenges he was seeing as a kid living in New York. Uh, and it, 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 it made so much sense, right? Because in the song, in the music, you hear the, the power of his voice. You know, his voice is like, you know, it's, 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 just, it's, it's giving you the energy that you need to like stand up for what you believe in. But then when he's just in conversation with you, you know, it's just he's like a regular dude on some level. And he's just talking to you and explaining how he experienced pain, how he experienced racism, how his family experienced challenges. Uh, and, and, and those challenges helped him to actually shape that the, the super group that became Public Enemy. So that was a really, really special opportunity to kind of get into, into dialogue with him. He's now uh, at UCLA as artist in residence. And we're going to have a chance in a couple of weeks to sit down again for the UCLA release of the book. Um, and he also recognized the people who came before him because in the way he inspired me, he was also inspired by a mentor we have in common, Harry Belafonte, who I also interviewed for the book. I got to interview, and this was really the, the genesis of the book. I got to interview nine years ago. I can't believe it's been that long I've been working on this project, but nine years ago, I interviewed Harry Belafonte and Dolores Huerta, you know, uh, the leader of the United Farm Workers Movement, you know, the woman who worked with Cesar Chavez 
Now, back to the patriarchy thing, Cesar Chavez gets all the credit, but Dolores Huerta, you know, even Obama says he got Yes We Can from her, Si Se Puede, right? You know, so to sit down with her and sit down with him, the two of them giants, you know, they were in their 80s at the time, they're in their 90s now, and to hear them, literally, they were at the Ford Foundation, and for them to rip the Ford Foundation <laughs> for being part of you know, what some would call the nonprofit industrial complex and not funding folks who are doing organizing work on the ground to make change before they can give all the fancy evaluations and metrics and whatnot. It was beautiful. It was it was inspiring. And so that's that's where, where Chuck D got his stuff, too. It's, it's really important to recognize those who came before us because none of us is here on our own. You know, so the as, as same way that we want to challenge sort of previous generations and what's been constructed that is problematic and not serving us. I also want to honor the stuff that came before us that is serving us, you know, the elders. So this book is an intergenerational mixtape. It's a mixtape where you have the Chuck D's, you have the, 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 the Dolores and Harry's, you also have the longest held solitary confinement survivor in the country, Albert Woodfox. He did 44 years in a six by nine box. 44 years. And he, this is in the Angola Penitentiary. The Angola Penitentiary, so-called because this is the plantation, former slave plantation, it was actually four slave plantations in Louisiana that immediately after the Civil War, they turned it into a penitentiary. So it basically just changed the sign from Angola State Plantation to Angola State Penitentiary, right? And this, to get back to the question you raised earlier about guilt versus innocence, you know, some people say, well, Black people are more in jail because they break the law. Well, look at how the law has evolved. As soon as slavery ended, they created this series of black codes based on something that came before called the slave codes, but the black codes and the vagrancy laws, really important to know because the vagrancy laws were these laws that said, if you're a vagrant, you are a criminal, you're committing a crime. So what's a vagrant? Somebody who has no place to live, somebody who doesn't have a job. So immediately after the civil war, when slavery was abolished, who didn't have a job? <laughs> Who didn't have a place to live? Black people. So all these black folks leaving the plantation, trying to go find a place to live, going, trying to go find work, many going north, were immediately stopped and that they didn't have a job or a place to live, they were taken back to the same plantations, now called penitentiaries, and forced to do labor. And now in some ways it was worse because they created this thing called the convict lease system. The convict lease system said, if you were convicted of a crime like vagrancy, you could be leased out to different plantations. And the different plantations would work you sometimes even worse than during slavery. Because if you, uh, if you, you have your own car, if you buy your own car, you own it, you're going to take care of it, right? You know, mm -hmm. even if you have insurance, you don't want to bang it up too much because you got to live with those dings and dents and, you know, all that stuff. But if you rent a car and you got that insurance where you bang it up, you could go get another one, mm -hmm. you might drive a little more recklessly. So they would work the folks under the ground, under the system of servitude called the convict lease system to show other workers you better do what I'm telling you, otherwise you're gonna get the same fate. And so in some ways, the idea of innocence versus guilt in this country has really been a false choice because what does it mean to be guilty of vagrancy, to be put in prison, to be put to work in, in an enslaved uh, space, to be re-enslaved because you're breaking these laws. And in some ways, the drug laws for the last 40 years have been a new form of those vagrancy laws. These drug laws that say, you know, after Giuliani became the mayor of New York City, the year before Giuliani became mayor, there were 5,000 drug arrests for marijuana in New York City. The next year, there were over 15,000 drug arrests for marijuana in New York City. Did three times the number of people start smoking weed in New York City the next year? Absolutely not. 
but they decided to criminalize certain activities because they use that as a way to fill the prisons. And prisons have operated like hotels in this country for most of, of, of their history in this country. The more the beds are filled, the more they're getting paid from the private prisons, which are less than 10% of prisons overall, to the public prisons, federal, the federal, the state, the city and county jails, which you know have private contracts with companies like MCI for many years to do the phones or uh, Starbucks to actually put together holiday products as Mother Jones reported several years ago. So it's, it's big business. It's an over $80 billion business. And uh, this is why I, I censor folks who have been formerly incarcerated or system impacted in this book because we really need to begin listening to their voices if we're gonna change and dismantle the prison industri prison industrial complex as we know it. Right. And it's sort of like when we toss these people to the side, we say, well, they're just criminals. So who cares if they're making like, let's say, I don't know, whatever it is, like 10 cents an hour, if even that. And it's also it seems to be a misconception. And I think a lot of people have it where it's like if you're in a public prison, the idea is that, well, well you know, if it's government funded, there is some sort of rule. Uh, there's some sort of like uh, rules that essentially prevent or prohibit exploitation. Right. But uh, Brian, can you speak to that a little bit, how that's not true, that it doesn't actually matter whether that because, you know, the idea is like, oh, if we abolish private prisons, the public prisons are different story right like these are fine like these are good right right, right. it's the private prisons that are the actual product of uh, problem right but you argue sort of something contrary to that whereas in your understanding it's not the entire prison system has to go can you tell us why yes yeah, so so you know you mentioned earlier like <clears throat> mental health right you know we have more people with mental health problems in prisons than we have in mental health institutions in this country you know so prisons are being used to do a whole lot of things they don't do well Prisons don't help deal with mental health well. Prisons don't help deal with drug addiction well. Every drug you can get on the street, you can get in prison, right? Prisons don't help, help deal with poverty. It's harder to get a job after you get out than when you go in, right? They don't help reduce crime and make us feel more safe. So we have been sold this idea that prisons are going to cure our all these problems. But we, we see it demonstrated over and over again that they actually don't do that. They're not effective. And so while privatized prisons, what they do is they actually help to bring into focus how corrupt it is to mix, to conflate the profit motive with these notions of justice or punishment, right? It's like people are getting paid to punish folks. So when you have like these two judges in Philadelphia recently who were selling kids basically through their decisions and taking kickbacks to get to lock kids up in the juvenile facilities in Philadelphia, right? Up to $2 million in kickbacks. It makes it clear, private prisons make it clear. Somebody's making money and doing a contract with the state saying you're gonna guarantee 90% of the beds will be filled. That's, it's, it's glaringly corrupt, right? right? It's obviously corrupt, but even the public facilities are part of this, this, this monster, this, this, this beast that is, is, is crushing up folks. And it was you know, really initially to, to, to really cage Native American people because they were taking the land, black people because they were enslaved as, as, as Africans. And then once, once slavery was abolished, it was a way to control that population, right? But even white folks in middle America, right? In record numbers, right? Are being incarcerated as well. And many times for drug-related crimes, for, 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 for drug-related offenses. And we know that the opioid uh, crisis, you know, has affected white folks around this country, white communities like in, in ways that are devastating. And still we have many people being locked up for their, their addictions, right? Rather than having their addiction treated as a disease, the Centers for, for Disease Control declared many years ago that addiction should be treated as a disease. Substance abuse should be treated as a disease. 
you shouldn't incarcerate people for a public health issue. It should be treated as a public health issue. And so from mental illness to addiction to poverty, which is the mother of revolution and crime, right? Poverty leads folks to actually make, have, we have limited choices and they're forced to make those choices. They're, they're dis prisons are disguising the fact that we need to do more work to make more fair, equitable and just society. And the idea that prisons are here to serve our interests and make us feel more safe is an illusion that we really need to begin to dismantle. It's a profit motivated business. And I would say in the same way that President Eisenhower, when he was leaving office, gave a, a, a famous speech where he talked about and cautioned the country against mixing the military, military industrial complex, this, this machine that's building more and more weapons. We see it, you know, we see it active right now. We, we, we should be cautious about mixing the military industrial complex with the idea of, 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 of profit motive, right? If we allow folks to just generate huge wealth, right? And build up the military machine of this country, right? We're getting us to a place where we make all these weapons and we're gonna have to use them, right? We, the, the threat of nuclear war has never been closer to us than it is right now. And that's because we've invested far more in building up weapons that can destroy every human being on the planet than we have in developing the full potential of every human being on the planet. And so that is also brought into focus with the prison industrial complex, because the prison industrial complex is network of institutions that lead the United States to have the highest prison population of any country in human history, right? That prison industrial complex is also infected with this idea of profit motive. And if we continue to allow ourselves to build a society where we, we, we see in some, some, some communities in, 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 in rural America, in, in the Midwest, they are praying for prison <clears throat> where factory jobs have gone uh, to other countries because they can exploit the workers there without having to deal with human rights violations, right, being called out. Um, where you know different industries have been in decline from the, the, the auto industry to, to, to mining industries, right? They're, they're praying for prison because a prison is an economic bone because folks can get jobs, but we need to find other ways to solve those problems because putting human beings in cages, as Malcolm X said, right, is not the solution. Right, and you, my bad, no, sorry. Okay. So I, in the book, uh, there's a, a part where uh, you mentioned this idea of decarceration. C could you speak to that? Because when I read about it, I was like, oh, that, that sounds interesting. Like, how would that work exactly? Yeah, so great question. There's, there's, we talk a lot about mass incarceration. Mass decarceration is this idea that we need to figure out ways to whittle the prison population down, right? And ultimately, you know, the, the larger movement <clears throat> of prison abolition is this movement that really sees the abolition of slavery as connected to the abolition of the prison industrial complex as we know it. Right, so this idea that we're fighting for freedom to end slavery, and in so many ways, <clears throat> excuse me, prisons continue certain elements uh, that uh, that slavery actually maintained. And so, really quickly, just to give you a couple, prisons and slavery uh, both uh, stole our labor. Right, they exploited us for our labor. Right, uh, prisons and slavery uh, both confined us in an inhumane way. The, the, the United Nations has said 15 days of solitary confinement is torture, right? Albert mm. Woodfox says one day in solitary confinement is torture. Shaka Senghor, you know, who did four years 
uh, and it's four years at once in solitary and seven years total says it's it's torture. So, so the prisons confine us in inhumane ways, they exploit our labor, and they subject us to wanton violence, right? So the violence that Albert Woodfox in the Angola State Penitentiary was locked up for, he was seeing young boys come into the prison and get raped over and over and over again. And he and a couple other brothers said, we're not going to stand for this. We're not, we can't live with ourselves, we stand for this. So they said, we're going to organize the first chapter of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And we're going to say in our wing of the prison, that's not happening. That's mm -hmm. not happening. And so they organized themselves and they stood to defend any of the young men who came into the prison. And they would not allow the predators in that space to, to rape them, right? And I shouldn't say predators. I shouldn't say that language. I don't want to want to label or or use language that is 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 dehumanizing at all. But I will say there's some folks who had mental mental health issues, folks who experienced deep trauma, folks who actually were recycling their trauma, reproducing it on other folks. And so they said, "We're not going to let you do that. We're not. That's not going to happen here." And because they did that, he and the Angola Three were put in solitary confinement for decades. Right? Uh, he for the the longest time. But that was an attempt to stop the violence, to abolish the violence that began during slave plantations and it continued into the penitentiaries, into the prison industrial complex. So mass incarceration is part of this larger abolitionist mission of ending the subjugating treatment that began with slavery and continues in prisons today. And there are a number of ways we can do it, but it starts off with thinking about how do we, what kind of communities do we wanna live in? What kind of communities do we wanna build where this is, is not necessary. And the framework that, that comes out, and this is, is also broken down in the book, comes from the Center for New Leadership in Central Brooklyn, uh, organization started by over 100 formerly incarcerated men and women from every uh, discipline from law to medicine. The framework is something that they call human justice. And the equation for human justice, as they put it, is that human rights plus human development equals human justice. So what does that mean? So human rights basically is we all have basic human dignity, regardless of your background, what country you're from, what color you are, there's basic human dignity that even in times of war should be respected. All right. So that's, that's important. I've taught the International Human Rights Law Clinic directed at UCLA. That's critically important, but it's not enough. It's defensive. It's, it's built after World War II, after the Holocaust, and its ideas, we have to defend, defend our basic human dignity, but it's not enough. So human rights plus human development and human development means that every human being should have the opportunity to be developed, to develop their full potential, right? You should have the opportunity for the genius inside of you to be fully developed, right? You know, you all have this brilliant podcast that you invited me to be on and you have access to certain equipment. I see you got the fly microphones, the fly headgear on and everything. You know, when I went to England in the Brixton prison, the Brixton prison has a state-of-the-art recording facility where they do podcasts that go to, wow. to 80,000 people all over England in the prison. I've never seen anything like that in a prison in the United States, right? In the Netherlands, I know a warden, Franz Dow in the Netherlands, he's got what he calls an honors prison. A hundred men, they have a hundred cell phones. Mm. He says, I want you to know how to use the technology. We're going to listen in your, your calls. We're monitoring with your surveillance on everything. But if you get out of here and don't know how to use a cell phone, don't have an email address, not having an email address is like not having a last name. You're not going to have a chance at getting a job. So, but he sees them as human beings in his prison. 
And he's preparing them to get out and never come back again. Here in the United States, they laughed at me when I asked to bring a flash drive in. They said, oh, maybe a Betamax tape, a VHS tape. They don't want a flash drive. There, there's, there's, finally, tablets are, are, are on the table in some facilities. But for the most part, for the last decades, and part of that is we don't, we have not seen the people in these human cages as human beings. So seeing people as worthy of the opportunity to develop their full human potential is part of that equation. Human rights plus human development equals human justice. And human justice is the model for justice that I'm aspiring to. Not just, justice should not just be seen as punishment. Justice should not just be seen as retribution. An eye for an eye, as Dr. King says, leaves everybody blind, right? These are old notions of justice, the Hammurabi Code and whatnot. I'm looking at justice as uh, restoration, restoring our humanity, transformation, making us the best that we can be, not stuck in being what we were, but look at the possibilities for what we can be moving forward and honoring our full humanity. So human justice. And that's what I think mass decarceration is aiming at. Right. I love that, man. And then, you know, thinking it through, right, and going back to the idea that we had before about, you know, the James Baldwin concept of sort of pureness, right? I'm thinking about it in terms of capitalism and thinking about, well, you know, if we're thinking about capitalism in terms of, uh, you know, laissez-faire economics, and we're talking about Reaganism, we're thinking of it, oh, okay, we're saying to ourselves something along the lines of, you know, capitalism sort of finds its way to kind of purity in a way, right? It's like, if we just leave it alone, capitalism will find its way to, to kind of make sure that every everybody's sort of equal under the law or kind of equally represented, right? But we're we're actually not getting that because if we see capitalism as what it is, which is literally a system of exploitation, what you have is big business intruding on private prisons, or I'm sorry, public prisons. So because if you're thinking about big business, why wouldn't big business intrude on prisons? And if anything, why wouldn't big business support the notion of prisoners as being dehuman or dehumanized? Because this way you could get the rest of the public to say, well, yeah, I mean, who cares? They're exploiting people who are criminals anyway. What's the big deal? Right. So thinking about it and thinking about sort of capitalism and how it can work together with reformation, you know, kind of like what you speak about, Brian, I don't know if the two can sort of work together. Right. Because if we're thinking about reformation and if we're thinking about, uh, let's say, fairness or we're thinking about equality, the greed motive is always going to intrude and the profit motive motive is always going to intrude. And I just wonder if we can't mix those two systems together. Right. What do we do? Right. How do we sort of form the economy otherwise? I think that's a wonderful question. It's a powerful question. I know we're getting close to our time here, but I will say, mm-hmm. you know, as a you know, really brilliant legal scholar of jurisprudence, Roberto Mangibera Unger uh, mm-hmm. used to say, you know, capitalism and communism are both 19th century economic systems that we are not trapped in, right? They're not the only ways we can organize our society, right? And I will say just for capitalism specifically, uh, you're absolutely right. It's rooted in exploitation. Eric Williams' capitalism and slavery, you know, is finally being recognized for making that connection. They're, they're inextricably linked, capitalism and slavery. And so the, the reality is those who defend capitalism in the name of the free market being more efficient need to come to terms with the fact that, you know, slavery was pretty damn efficient. Yep. It was pretty damn efficient. Yeah, what's more efficient than make all these, you know, millions of black folks work for me and don't pay them nothing, right? That's pretty efficient. There's got to be a measure beyond efficiency that we use to organize our society. There's got to be something besides just be as efficient as possible. There's got to be humanity. It's got to be dignity, right? Mm -hmm. There's got to be something more. Otherwise, we will be trapped in the constructs that got us to this point. I'll I'll say one last, uh, I think, short lyric that uh, brings this to mind for me really powerfully it comes from from one of my mentors from Harry Belafonte mm-hmm. and it's an old 
Polish workers anthem uh, that says, calculate carefully and ponder it well. And remember this when you do. My two hands are mine to sell. They built your machines. They can stop them too. I love that. Wow. Wow, man. What a great point to end it off on. All right. Alan, the final questions for Beyond before we wrap up, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where, where could we find you? So I am on uh, my website is Brion.com, B-R-Y-O-N-N.com. You can find me there. I am also, for those in LA, I am going to be doing one night only lyrics from lockdown uh, with the LA Philharmonic at the Skirball Center. That's on June 2nd. Uh, we'll be assigning for Rebel Speak, the book right after that. And you can also, yes, yes, you can pick it up. Uh, you can pick it up right now, UC Press. Big shout out to the University of California Press, folks who work so hard to bless this, makes this project part of their hip hop series, their hip hop studies series. And right now, I'm still on Twitter. We'll see what happens with Elon. I might not be there much longer, but you can find me at <laughs> Brian Bain uh, and on Instagram. But the website is the best way to reach me, Brian.com, B-R-Y-O-N-N.com. Uh, so look for me. Awesome. awesome. I, I actually have one question before we go. One final okay. one. If you had to recommend one hip hop album, what, what would it be? Ooh. Oh, that's, that's like easy. That. That's easy. Well, I got to say my son, <laughs> Indigo 13's Big East Side. That's the album list to right now. I mean, I, I grew up on, on a bunch of giants and I would say, you know, I, I just picked up Criminal Minded, which is KRS-One's classic mm -hmm you know, for a long time. Uh, so, and between, in terms of classics, between that and Rakim's Microphone Fiends, as a lyricist, as a poet, those are two albums that definitely shaped me. Uh, it's really hard to say, because between that and, I mean, everything by Public Enemy, but uh, <laughs> those are the classics that I, I really, I really, really love. But I'm right now I'm listening to my son's Big East Side by Indigo 13. That's, that's what I'm bumping. So that's what I gotta, I gotta shout out. I love it, man. All right, Brian, man, thank you so much for thank coming so on. Much, Super man. enlightening. Thank you, fellas. Appreciate you. Peace and blessings. Hope you're well. Absolutely. Peace, you too, Take man. Care. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right. First of all, that was awesome. Yep. <laughs> all right. So, everyone, if you want to follow us, uh, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. And again, the book is called Rebel Speak available at amazon.com and other places where you get your books. Uh, don't forget the site, www.brion.com, B-R-Y-O-N-N.com. And guys, thanks again for watching. See you next time.